0: Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. This week, I'll be covering a few listener questions about starting a marketplace, which marketing channels to pursue with a new app, evaluating resellers, and why the path from agency work to SaaS is so hard. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 457. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing startups, whether you've built your fifth startup or you're working on your first. I'm Rob, and today I'm going to share my experiences to help you avoid the mistakes I've made in the past. I tweaked the intro a little bit today based on a suggestion from my 13-year-old. He said, built your first product or just thinking about it is, is too narrow he says, aren't there people who've started their first, second, third, fourth that are still listening? And I said, yeah. So tweaked it there. Each week on the show, I talk about topics relating to building and growing startups in order to better your life and improve the world in a small way. In our world of startups, we strive to have a positive impact on other people, be it your customers, your team, your family, yourself. We are ambitious founders, but we're not willing to sacrifice our life or our health to grow our company. We have many different show formats. Sometimes we come on and we teach a tactic Talk about philosophies and thoughts of starting startups and growing them. Other times we do interviews. I've done several of those over the past weeks. We have listener questions, which is what we'll be doing today. Founder hot seats and other things like that. My co-host Mike Tabor is on a brief hiatus. I do think he'll be back in the next few weeks and we can catch up with him, find out what he's been doing with the enormous amount of free time he's had not doing this podcast. Listener questions have been piling up, including a couple of voicemails. Today, I'm going to run through a few of those and give you my thoughts and insights on them. First one is a comment from Adrian Rosebrock, fan of the show, a longtime, uh, many-time microconf attendee. And his comment is about our Gmail clients and even paste and match style, which I was complaining that Mailplane didn't support. And he says, and the last startup for the rest of us, you were discussing Gmail clients. Two tips. Number one, use Kiwi." for your desktop client for gmail amazing client works really well has good integrations with the other g products number two if you need to paste and match style you do command shift v on a mac it'll work in the majority of applications and saves a right click good tips thank you sir i have not checked out kiwi yet but it is definitely on my list I've actually ceased the exploration for a desktop Gmail client for now. I have enough going on and somehow flipping back to doing it in Chrome. It's not bothering me anymore. There were some real performance issues I was experiencing and I'm not seeing those any longer. Our next question involves starting a two-sided marketplace and TJ's asking whether he should charge from day one.
1: Hey guys, this is TJ's Astro calling. I'm, focusing on a startup for artisan makers to get them more exposure and you guys have been tremendous help to me and I'm just trying to figure out if I can launch with uh, charging right away or what I should be doing. My gut instinct is to onboard them for a few months as the it's a double-sided marketplace and so the synergy of all of them together as a collective community is sort of where the value will be coming from eventually. So my instinct is Onboard them, show them I'm active in the in the pro members chat only uh, in those forums and that I'm committed to helping them get more exposure in sales by offering them strategies and advice and such and then maintaining transparency with my site analytics as it modestly grows. I'm hoping that I'll be able to get it quite grassrootsy uh, in the way that I'm providing them uh, these services and such and they'll be able to share the site uh, as I don't really have a marketing budget. Okay, well... Let me know what your thoughts are. Thank you so much.
0: TJ also wrote in and he said, hey, I just recorded a voicemail and it wasn't very clear or well-spoken. said he's launching a two-sided marketplace, no marketing budget, and it is a membership site. Primary focus is to aggregate the Instagram posts of artisan brands. He has an email list of 2,000 artists who he'd like to curate on the site, but they're mostly cold contacts. And he's going to have both free and paid monthly memberships. Says he has no market validation. Everything he's heard or read says charge. Don't give away your product or you won't know if you have a real product market fit. But since it's a double-sided marketplace, both shoppers and artisans, I need to be able to demonstrate value to the artisans by attracting the shopper to the site. Then TJ talks about the different pricing tiers. It'd be a free plan for artisans and also a paid plan. And he says, My gut instinct is I should onboard the artisans for a few months, a free trial of the paid pro member level, but not collect credit cards on sign up. Show them I'm active in the pro-member-only chat forums, that I'm committed to helping them get more exposure and sales by offering strategies and advice. Maintain transparency with my site analytics as they modestly grow. Encourage them to share my site with their list as a play to help them and other members get more exposure. See where the analytics are in a few months. Emphasize to them the growth trajectory I'm hoping I'll see and try collecting a card to charge them to stay on as pro members. Obviously, a complicated question, TJ, and there's there's a lot here. We've talked about two-sided marketplaces before, and my advice tends to be for kind of bootstrapped or indie-funded companies is to not do it, because they're just so hard to get started. Um, you even heard Tracy Osborne a couple weeks ago talking about Wedding Lovely, and while we didn't delve into the difficulties of two-sided marketplaces, she definitely has had some, <laughs> some, some thoughts on that. It, it's very hard. It, it just creates, you know, it's hard enough just to get one funnel working, but you literally have to get two separate funnels working, and you have to have them at scale before things will work. So you are definitely pushing a boulder uphill with this one. The way I always think about this is thinking back to how Uber did it. And, you know, with Uber, they needed at least a couple drivers in the field before they could release the app and have it provide any value. If my memory serves me correctly, Travis Kalanick and his co-founder literally were driving the black cars just as a test. Obviously, this doesn't scale. It's not what you're doing, you're just testing. If people have this app, will they call a car in downtown San Francisco? That was the hypothesis. Once they started getting people calling them, then they had you know, some data, enough metrics that they could go to black car drivers and you know, either cold call them or just approach them at the airport or whatever and say, hey, we have this app. Do you want to be on the receiving side of it? And we're right now we're getting you know two calls, three calls a day, but it basically takes you right to them and then you get paid directly and you don't have to go through you know your dispatch basically. And that's how they built it up and that is an incredibly long and painful way to build to build an app until the two-sided marketplace has a network effect and then it's amazing and it grows super fast. But almost no one gets there, right That's the hard part. The challenge is getting past those early days. And so in the early days that you're in, I mean, with zero marketing budget, the odds are even less in your favor. It's very, very, very difficult what you're trying to do. But granted that that this is what you want to do, you have to be super scrappy. And it sounds like you're thinking in those terms. All the stuff you've read about saying charge, don't give away your product. If you have a SaaS app that provides value, people only pay for something that is providing them value. So if I build an email service provider or a long tail keyword tool or invoicing app or whatever... When someone puts their credit card in and they pay, the next day they can get value out of it or that same day they can get value out of it. That's not the case with a two-sided marketplace with no consumer, you know, no demand side, so to speak. Getting suppliers onto your marketplace without the supply side, you're going to have to have it be free to some extent. And whether you just have the free plan the whole time, whether you tell them, hey, you're on a paid plan, this is the difference, and you know, in three or four months, by the time we have demand... I will be charging you $49 a month. Is this interesting? That's the conversation to have, right? I, I don't see major problems with the plan aside from two-sided marketplaces are really hard, especially when you have no money. But aside from that, I don't see how you can possibly charge suppliers You know, when there is no value being provided because I don't know anyone who would pay for that without that supply side. I think the one thing I would say is if you haven't already started building up the supply side, because you have the artist list, but is there a way to get an email list, a blog following, an Instagram following, a podcast following, just some demand side built up so that you're not starting at a standing stop. You said you're relying on the vendors or the suppliers to promote it. And while that's fine, it's not, it's not going to, be enough I'm guessing I think that you doing some type of marketing and and you're gonna have to get creative with it right but you' are it sounds like you're pretty creative having you know again no no budget and and you've thought this through pretty well I would be looking at ways to have enough interested consumers like think about it this way groupon is also a two-sided marketplace and when Groupon went to a new city they would cold call the stores the retailers this the supply side and then they would post a landing page for the demand side. And, you know, again, the demand side is the consumers and that landing page would then, they would advertise it. They would, you know, promote it in any way they can. Obviously, you know, again, you're saying you have no budget, so it's hard to do this, but that's how I would approach it is I would have a landing page up of like, we're coming here soon, or this is something we're going to have soon. And then I would have, whether it's Facebook ads, Instagram ads, or if you need to do it for free, then you're gonna have to put in, you know, it's just going to be sweat right? It's going to be a blog post or many of them. It's going to be interviews. It's going to be content, viral content, whatever it is that you can get guerrilla marketing style with no, you know, essentially with no cost. That's one way to build up that demand side. And then you can point to the artists and say, Hey, I do have 5,000 or 10,000 people on an email list that are interested in hearing about it. I still think your, your approach of going with no credit card, not charging them, but giving them the expectation upfront is fine. But then you don't have to start from a standing stop. So that's, that's how I would think about it. I hope that's helpful. My next question is another voicemail. Voicemails always go to the top of the stack. Um, this one's a bit long, but I will have our editor clean it up a bit. And it is from Keith Gillette with Tasktrain.app.
2: Hi, Rob. My name is Keith Gillette. My founder-funded B2B SaaS startup Tasktrain.app is in private beta right now. TaskTrain is a lightweight process management platform that allows service managers to integrate standard operating procedures and just-in-time training into everyday workflow, enabling teams to deliver service quickly and correctly. Based on our expertise and our early customer development feedback, we're targeting IT operations directors and digital marketing agency COOs as our initial customer segment. Our launch plan has been to market and sell per-user subscriptions directly to customers via the web. I have two questions. One, what marketing channels would you recommend pursuing? We have a PR plan when we're ready for a full public launch but are not sure how aggressively to invest in building a social media presence and or in paid advertising, neither of which we have yet tried, as we've been too focused on getting a functional product.
0: And we're going to cut the voicemail there, and I'll answer this question, and then we'll roll into his second question. So congrats, Keith, on getting to launch. It sounds like, yeah, you've been too focused. You've made the traditional mistake of heads down, basement coding. I know you've been having customer development feedback, but you haven't done any marketing. And I guess the first thing I would say is go to robwalling.com, enter your email address, and you'll get a book that I wrote called Start Marketing the Day You Start Coding. And whether you read the book or not, just having the title is really what I would say. It's typically before I have anyone break ground, you know, I, I will validate the idea and then put up a landing page such that even if you only have 50 people on an email list at that point, that's your starting ground. And that's that's where you begin when you launch. Um, you've talked about having a PR plan in place, which is fine. You know, I haven't seen PR work for apps like this that are kind of just, you know, line of business apps. They aren't that interesting and PR likes to tell a good story. If you happen to have a good story, you know, that's fine. I don't think you need a social media presence at this point. I mean, reserve your Twitter handle, whatever, but that's not going to bring you customers yet especially if you're not, if you don't have an audience, if that's not your thing, if obviously if you had a podcast or an audience or a blog or something and you were on Twitter talking to people and that was, you know, you're taking the kind of the the Ben Orenstein, the Derek Reimer, the Brian Castle approach, then that'd be one thing, but you're, you're not doing that yet. So I I would not spend any time really in, in building that out. What I would do is, I mean, there's endless number of traction channels you can go after. Obviously, SEO and paid advertising are two nice ways to get traffic, but whether that traffic converts is is a real question. Um, outbound sales is the third, and those are the three kind of avenues that really scale well. Which of these do you have experience with, you know, and if the answer is none, then Pick one and dive in. That's how it is when you're starting out. And this is one reason why I espouse the, the, the stair-step approach to bootstrapping is that with your first product from a standing stop trying to manage all the complexities of building and launching a SaaS app and then looking at the massive array of marketing options available, it's hard and it's overwhelming. Without the experience, the confidence, the budget, it's not an easy question to answer in essence. The, I'd say of all the episodes of Startups for the Rest of Us, we're at, what is it, 457? More than half I would guess two thirds, maybe three quarters deal with this question of how do I market, how do I get more customers, how do I get more leads? you know what do I do and it, and it is a it, literally books have been written on this topic. Two books I would recommend number one is traction by Gabriel Weinberg and Justin Maris, they go through 20, 22 traction channels. And you can, you know, l- look at those as a starting point for kind of, um, zeroing in on each, on each of those, of those areas. And they include, it includes paid acquisition and, and SEO and, r- and running events and all kinds of stuff. Um, the other book is SaaS Marketing Essentials by Ryan Battles. And I think that'll be a, a pretty good start for you because this question of what marketing channels would you recommend? It really, really depends. For me, just looking at it, I would do some content and I would do some LinkedIn ads. That's probably where I would start. But that's not to say they're going to work. It's just the two things I would start with, you know, and Facebook ads and and Google AdWords just to see, are they going to work? I don't know. Audience building, is that a skill of yours? If it is, then build an audience. If it's not, then don't. So it depends so much. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of variables in terms of how much budget do you have? How quickly do you want to need to grow? What is your skill set? Do you have any experience with any of these, any desire to try any of them? So it's a, it's a pretty broad question, but that's where I think it comes down to doing your own research, making that list, basically your marketing game plan. I've talked on the on the podcast in the past about how, with each app I would build or acquire, I would make this this marketing game plan. So I have the hittail marketing game plan, the drip marketing game plan. It was a huge list, huge bulleted list. So Let's say seven pages, single space bulleted list with some headings. Of these are the types of things um, you know we want to do right at launch, and these are the people I'm going to talk to who have agreed to you know to perhaps promote it, and then I want to try Facebook ads, and here are the market segments I want to do, and I want to try AdWords, and these are the segments I want to do, and and then you can go in, basically go into a spreadsheet. And you put out the ones that you think are going to work at this stage, and you take a guess at how much traffic you think you can generate, how much cost you think, and and time you think it'll take, and figure out: do you do it yourself? Do you hire it out? Do you hire someone internally to do it? So there's there's so much to think about here that I think you have you have a little bit of uh, research and thinking to do. So good luck with that, Keith. And now let's dive into Keith's second
2: question. Second question. One of our beta users has expressed interest in becoming a reseller of our platform as a value-added offering in his virtual CIO consulting service portfolio. While I had the potential for VARs in mind when designing Task Train, I had not expected to pursue the channel until we were a bit further along. Now, we have zero paying customers at this point, and so no data on margins, customer acquisition costs, or lifetime value of a customer on which to base sales commission or revenue sharing, how would you recommend we think about structuring a potential reseller contract? Thanks for any guidance on those early stage marketing and sales questions.
0: Every product that I have launched typically gets interest from resellers and white labelers. This is very common for you to get reached out to by folks who want to resell and or white label your software. When we launch Drip even really early, we were getting two emails a week from people. I want to do this, but in for realtors. And I want to do this, but for mortgage brokers or for the hair salons or whatever. Can I white label? Can I white label? And it's just a totally different, totally different market, you know? So white labeling is one, and I realize you're asking more about reselling here, but white labeling is one thing that I discourage people from exploring in the early days. I think it dilutes your brand equity. It's a huge distraction. It's almost a completely separate product. It's very rare that people make it work it, of course, can work, but it's not something I would encourage you to do unless that's really what your heart is set on. Don't let it be a distraction. Resellers are different because you don't, it's not a product distraction. It's going to be more of a, I would say, almost a, a founder distraction in terms of having to come up with the model and sign a contract and, and work with them to help promote and make sure they're not reselling it to people who you don't want to be part of your customer base, I guess. And that, that's the thing. With a SaaS app, are they just an affiliate are they, are they reselling it? I guess the difference between affiliates is affiliate would just sell it based on your pricing and they would keep a commission to pay them 10, 20, 30% you know, of, of the recurring revenue. Whereas a reseller, maybe they have an account that they can put a bunch of people in and they only pay you a certain amount and they just sell it for more. I think that's probably the difference I would think about. I know in the, you know, in the IT, since you are targeting IT operations directors, digital marketing agency, COOs maybe resellers would be helpful. I think I would only consider it if this reseller already has a huge network, right? Already has leads. Because if this person is just going to go out and run ads and do cold outbound, you can do that. You don't need them. But if they have a list, if they already have an audience that they essentially want to pitch it to or market to, uh, it's worth considering personally, I would, I don't have enough experience with it to do it. I, and I would get offers like these and I would basically say, nope, not right now. Not until we know our customer acquisition costs, our margins, our LTV, all those things that you're saying, you know, you don't have. So my advice would be to kick it down the line a bit. Once you get some customers and you know what your churn is and your revenue share, you want to be in your sales commissions and all this stuff. I think it'll be a lot easier to get something like this done it's just there's so many things flying in so many directions right now that having yet another distraction is not something I'd be super stoked about unless this really is a golden opportunity. And in my experience, people who want to resell a product that has zero customers, it's not it doesn't tend to be a golden opportunity. You know, I'd be pretty surprised if, if they did actually have an audience that they had a lot of reach into. So I would kick it down the line 3 months, 6 months and just say hey, I need to revisit this so much going on right now with the launch. You know, I mean it's it's easy to say you, that you're busy because you you are and you have competing priorities. And so I would uh try to revisit that later.
2: A final postscript. I want to thank Mike for his immense courage in being so open and vulnerable in sharing his blue tick blues with the startups for the rest of us community. As a fellow still struggling Boston-area B2B SaaS founder, I empathize with him in the challenges he's facing and deeply appreciate his willingness to share them in public. I wish him the best in deciding what's next. Gratitude to you both for your startups for the rest of this work.
0: Thanks for that, Keith. appreciate it, and I hope uh, my discussion was helpful. My next question is from Ash, and it's about agency-to-product-journey. He says, hi, Rob and Mike. I'm a big fan and listened to almost all episodes over the past five years. In a past episode, Rob mentioned the path from agency to product, especially SaaS is a hard path, which I understand. But could you please dive a bit deeper into why? And if one is on that path, how to run that transformation successfully? Thanks a lot. Keep up the great podcast. It's a good question, Ash. And it. And it I, so many of us have done this. I didn't run an agency per se. I was more a consultant. I, I did have some contractors working for me. So I was, pr- I was a micro agency, you know, it was a handful of us. And then I was the I was doing sales and, you know, doing some of the coding and such. The reason it's hard is because when you're an agency or a consultant, you can bill 150 an hour, whatever it is you're billing. It's really hard to not just book more hours and to make that 250 grand a year, 300 grand a year just by, you know, coding for someone else with frankly very little risk. You have some headache dealing with clients, of course, but there's not a ton of risk in it. Versus turning down work to block out a day or two a week to work less to get paid less to build something that you don't know if it's ever going to work. You don't know if you're ever going to get it launched, if it's going to have product market fit, if it's going to make enough money to ever pay it back. There was a good MicroConf talk a few years ago, it was one of our attendee talks, and it was by Ted Pitts from More Aware Software. And he talked about how he and his co-founder you know had good jobs and then they launched this software. And when he traced it forward, they were doing millions a year and pulling out quite a bit of profit before he felt like they hit the break-even line of how much money they could have made if they had just kept working their jobs. You know, if they had just stuck at day jobs with promotions and bonuses and and just steady paycheck the whole time versus the ups and downs of some years you make more and some years you barely make any in the early days of it not, you know, not paying much. But they wouldn't have it any other way, right? They didn't do it for the money. I mean, that's part of it, obviously, but but they did it for the freedom and the satisfaction, right? The freedom, the purpose, the relationships. And that's where it's it's hard to see that. It's hard to look ahead and especially hard to convince a significant other that Instead of making 300k a year, like you could as a consultant or 250 or whatever it is, I want to make 125 and I want to launch this app. It's going to take me six months or a year to launch, and then maybe two, three years to get to the point where it's even making as much money as I could be making if I just worked full- time you know on, on this consulting work. and then the payback period of the money I lost is even years out from there. That's the hard part. Like that's, that's a big part of why moving from agency work which pays well to starting a SaaS app which doesn't pay anything for a very long time and takes a really long time to get going and there's a bunch of risk that's why most people don't make the transformation. You know if you if you were in college or you were like me when I first started when I first started launching products I was working construction so I was an electrician. So there really wasn't much downside to me. And I did it all nights and weekends, obviously, because I was out on a construction site. And I had learned to code when I was eight years old, but I didn't know, you know, I'd been coding for years, but I didn't know a lot of the modern web languages. So I literally went to the public library. I got books on PHP, HTML, a little bit of Perl. And this is obviously years ago. And I started hacking away stuff on nights and weekends. And that's, that's how I learned. And then I eventually did make the shift into full-time employment as a developer. And that helped increase my chops really fast. So then when I went to build stuff on the side, I was way, way faster at it, but it still was a nine to five. And it was actually, it was helpful for me that I could go in nine to five. And when I left, my time was my own. Once I transitioned to consultant and I was billing hourly, I was obviously making a lot more money, but it became hard for me not to just do consulting work all the time because to consult 50, 60 hours a week, I could make more money than I had ever seen or ever heard of anyone making, you know, it was crazy to bill $100, 125 an hour and work 60 hour weeks, this is 15, 20 years ago, like that money really went a long way. So it, it's tough and it, it really is that, lo- it's a long-term view, it's having some confidence in yourself and it's, it's being able to look ahead five years and say, it's gonna hurt for now, but long-term, I think this is the better path. In addition, this is why I think either stair-stepping your way up is better because you can get some small wins along the way, builds confidence in yourself, builds a little bit of recurring revenue, builds confidence from your, you know, your spouse or significant other if you have one, but also acquiring. I think acquiring small products or even large products is a nice way to do it if you are running an agency and you have you have money, right? You should be making a decent chunk of money. Acquiring a product gets you past that product market fit that wall, right? It it puts you forward hopefully 18 months, maybe 24 months depending on the space you're in. And that's one reason why I acquired products early on is because I did have, I had more money than I had time once I was at that level where I could bill 100, 125 an hour and stay busy full time. Not everyone has that, right? Maybe you're scraping by to get agency work and, you know, maybe it's, maybe you do have downtime during the week or during a month and that's nice because then you can use that to focus on the product. Now I always felt guilty for us focusing on a SaaS product and not going out and finding more work. Because I thought to myself, if I run out of work and I don't have any in three months, am I going to look back on this and regret it? So, you know, you got to kind of get over that guilt if, if you're going to do it. So I, I'm guessing a lot of folks listening are experiencing this or, or thinking about this. And it's the, it's the conundrum of nights and weekends are hard. And this is one reason why people raise funding is so they don't have to do that. You know, it really is interesting to see someone raise a round of whatever, 150, dollars $300,000 With the sole purpose of that being that they don't have to make these decisions and they don't have to scatter their focus they don't have to worry about agency work or doing it nights and weekends they can just focus for a year or two on getting something to the point where you know where it's viable and where it's where it's making enough money that it's that it's sustainable that it's default alive as paul graham would say so i'm not saying you should raise funding or shouldn't obviously you know i never did building my stuff up it also took me a really long time to get there because I did it this way, and it was nights and weekends for me, and it was building an app, acquiring an app, parlaying one, stair stepping from one to the next to the next to next, and that's why it took me so long to get to Drip. If I had raised funding five, 10 years earlier, I would have built a you know a larger SaaS app like Drip earlier, but I just you know didn't have the resources, the experience, perhaps the you know the the confidence to do it at that point. So that's a good question, Ash. I appreciate you asking that, and I hope that was helpful. I think that about wraps us up for the day. If you have a question for the show, call our voicemail at 888 801 Voicemails go to the top of the stack. Or you can email us at questions at com. Our theme music is an excerpt from our Out of Control by Moot. It's used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us by searching for Startups and visit startupsfortherestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.